Hello, Brookstreet viewers and listeners. So um, before today's show started, Maria, my director, said, um, well, how do you describe this book? And I was like flummoxed. How do I describe this book? Um, the book is fiction. It's a bit dystopian and transformative, and yet it's fit chock full of good old boys and the South. So it's really like a melange of a lot of interesting themes. So I'd like to introduce you to Jeremy T. Wilson, the author of The Quail Who Wears the Shirt. Welcome to Book Stew, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me. So we'll have to start immediately with quail. Like other than, we were talking about cartoons before, I know there's like a Looney Tune that has a bunch of quails running around in it and they make funny noises and they have feathers coming out of their heads. But I think there was just one and I don't remember much about it. So where did the idea of featuring quails, and you'll have to explain um, a little bit about what happens to the quails or what happens to the humans in relation to quails uh, for, for the audience. Yeah, so um, what's happening is that for about 15 years or so, people have been mysteriously turning into quails, not like full on birds where they like shrink in size and fly away, but they start to develop quail properties. So their bodies change shapes and they get, like you said, the plume coming out of the top of their head. Um, and, uh, you know, their faces sort of elongate. Some of them, you know, look like they have um, beaks. Um, so they're sort of they're sort of changing their bodies uh, transformatively in significant ways, um, but nobody knows why it's happening, and it's happening everywhere. So the the people begin to sort of um, get ostracized by the larger community in certain places because um, no one knows how they might get it or what these people are all about. So certain rumors develop about them and about their abilities and what they what they what they are and how you might get it. So that's the setup for what's what's going on here. Um, now, how it came to me, I have no idea. Um, I've, <laughs> of course, been asked this question a lot. Um, I was working on a story uh, that was similar, um, and it did not have any fantastic elements in it at all. Um, and it just didn't, it just wasn't working. And a lot of times uh, in my process, I will throw in uh, fantastic or fabulous or speculative elements into a story when I'm stuck, just to sort of like see what happens. They don't always, they don't always stay in the story. Um, and so that was what I did. Um, and it came to me because like, you know, I woke up one morning and I wrote Quail People in my phone, uh, in my notes app. I don't know if I was dreaming about quail people or if I, um, or what, but that's where it came from. And so the next time I went, sat down to write and to work on that, um, I put them in there and then it became a lot more fun. And I sort of like redeveloped the whole thing around this idea. Well, it's, it's interesting how it, cause I, I think I was maybe 20 or 25 pages into it before I actually understood that it was humans who were becoming quails. And since it's been going on for a while, nobody seems to be really surprised by it. Um, 
they seem to be accepting of it, which I thought was really strange. But I guess, you know, they're not, people aren't turning into like fierce tigers or uh, creepy snakes or something. They're turning into some a really benevolent, and I don't think we know a lot about generally animals. So I think it was easy to accept. And there was also not really an environmental uh, take on it. So I thought maybe, okay, something as I was reading, I was expecting something to come out that said, oh, it was because, you know, there were quail eggs in the water or something like that. So you leave it as a complete mystery as to how and why this happens, which I thought was good because I don't even know how you, even with an imagination as active as yours, I don't know if you, how you'd come up with an explanation for it. But I wanted to say that what it reminded me of was Tom Parada's book, The Leftovers, um, which was also, a, I think, an HBO series about people who got raptured, but not everybody got raptured, and there was no reason why people seemed, the petite, you know, it wasn't all the religious people who got picked to get raptured. But it did remind me of that. I thought it had like a kind of uh, humor like Tom Parada had, and, and another instance where there was no explanation for why it happened, it just happened. But the other really uh, strong element in here is the South, and a specific area in the South, and an area that it sounds like from your biography you grew up in. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the your main character and the setting? Yeah, there was a, um, I want to go back to just really quickly to something you said in there. Like the reason, like another reason why the why quails were an attractive choice, if I even had a choice in the matter, was because they are benign, right? They're not, they're not tigers, like you said, which would be really, really scary. So it is much more of a type of situation where they can't, where even though they're sort of ostracized, they can still integrate into the community really well. And like people just exist alongside them. Um, the thing that's great about, like, I, I love that. Um, I didn't see the series, but I did read the book. Um, and one of the things that's essential about that book is that it's much more, it's much more about what happens after the event than it is the event, right? And a lot of times, uh, this is something I talk about with my students a lot, especially um, the younger students who are bent on creating stories that are about an event, and then they become sensationalized. And so it's much less about the characters involved and, and much more about like the thing that happens. But I think as, as, as readers and writers, like we're much more interested in like what happens to the people. Um, and so I, I didn't have that novel in mind, but I do, I do, I was, I was attracted to this idea of like what happens afterwards, which is why I wanted to make it so far after these things have been happening. Um, so as far as the South is concerned, yeah, I grew up in Georgia. Um, this is a made up place. Um, there is no town um, named Charity in Georgia uh, that I know of. Maybe there has been one invented since since I wrote this, but I don't think so. Um, uh, and yeah, so I grew up there, um, but I haven't lived there in over 20 years. I moved to Chicago in 2001. So um, I think a lot of writers write better about a place when they have left there, and that was something that is very much true for my experience. Um, and yeah, so I just I just said it there um, because I knew the place, and I I really like I'm not a big fan of research. 
Um, maybe that's clear in reading the book. Um, <laughs> I would much rather invent stuff than have to research things. And so for me, it's much easier in the writing process to get the words out if I'm familiar with the place that it, where, where, it's, where it's set and the people who are involved. Then I can just write. And then I can go back and do research as necessary. But it's much more about like, I can, I can move forward if I am among things that I'm experienced with. Well, I thought um, the main character, and, and this is in first person, is Lee Hubbs, who has inherited, and one of my favorite parts was the fact that uh, he, um, he owns a, like a produce farm, but the description of how it just was this close to being Vidalia onions and wasn't Vidalia onions was, was really hilarious because, you know, if you had to ask, like do a Mad Libs and you had blank onions, you would put probably Vidalia onions in there, but you had a different type of onion and yet Lee, um, you know, based on what he inherited from his, his family, was able to set up the type of place in Georgia where, you know, if you ever drove from Georgia to, from New York to Florida, which I did when I was a kid, and if it wasn't a Stuckey's, then it was, you know, some roadside place. And um, if, you, if you weren't on an, in, on an interstate, it was just like the only place you could stop and you needed water and you needed to go to the bathroom. And then you'd go into these places that kind of looked shabby on the outside and there'd be these fantastic things going on in there and baked goods you'd never seen and vegetables you weren't familiar with. So I think you caught that atmosphere really well and you described that there was nowhere basically in between you know, that nowhere else to stop along the way on that drive. And I, I just thought you caught the feeling of that place very well. And I don't know if people even know it anymore because, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to have remembered when there weren't interstates to get to, you know, down the East Coast on. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, um, that is again something that's familiar to me. I grew up, when I grew up, one of the uh, one of the earliest jobs I had was working at a peach stand that was outside of the gas station, um, and it was basically just a trailer where we sold peaches and whatever was um, whatever came in in the summer, uh, peaches, watermelons, onions, um, and it was great. I loved it. Um, and then as I got older, I had an, I had another job after college that was much more at a, that that was at a place that was much more like this. Um, in the sense that it was bigger, um, they had an inside and an outside and all that sort of thing. So, but yeah, I mean, I don't, they, um, these types of places, I, I guess you're right. Maybe they are few and far between now. I mean, as they get replaced by like these giant super stores like Bucky's and stuff. Are you familiar with Bucky's? Have you I have in? heard of it though. Um, I have never been to one, but I hear all the time about how they have like some great stuff you buy there, you know, junky food and it's like the place to stop. It's unbelievable. It's like it, but in some ways it's kind of a tragedy, right? Because like, you know, people, they have signs all up and down the interstate. It's like next, next Bucky's is a hundred and so miles or whatever. So it becomes like this thing where I'm not going to stop at any of these local places. Cause I'm going to go to this giant thing where I know I can get, um, you know, barbecue and like beaver nuggets or whatever they're called. I don't even know. But, um, so Lee um, is, when we meet him, is 
not really in a great place. He's having um, marital problems, um, and I think the character who is the quail who wears the shirt um, enters his life in and in just rides uh, into town on a bicycle and seems to be a very uh, amiable quail person. And then, unfortunately, Lee has a bad encounter with him out on the road, on a dark road, and then everything tumbles after that. And Lee's whole life is turned completely upside down with his, uh, his family leaves him, and um, he is responsible for what happened to the quail. And then he just decides to do some investigating about who was this quail who rode into town? So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the quail and the elements of him that made him so fascinating to Lee? Um, well, what makes him originally so fascinating to Lee is that um, in order for him, well, he has this sort of magical thinking, right? He thinks that, well, I did this horrible thing. Um, I got away with it. But this is the reason that my life is falling apart. And so if I can make amends somehow, then my life will be put back together. Okay, so he so this is his belief. And so his his interest in Valentine, who's the name of the of, of the quail, um, is purely selfish. But as he goes along and finds out more and more about him, he becomes more aware of the type of life that Valentine had led. Um, and it wasn't that wasn't a great one. Um, and so he then becomes more interested in, in him as a person um, throughout the journey. And what he's trying to do, like, you know, he, he thinks that all he has to do to absolve himself from this is to, uh, is to find someone who loved Valentine, tell them that he was sorry, and give them an onion pie. Because <laughs> this is the thing that his, his father would always do when um, anyone in the community passed away. He would make an onion pie and give it to them. And then but he thinks this is all he has to do. Um, so that's that's what he tries to do. And as you know, as he finds out more and more, um, things don't go as planned. Well, the other, one of the other elements that I really enjoyed was the contrast between Lee and the high school kids or younger kids who worked at the stand. So there was AJ and Ben and Jody, and Jody is a girl and she was a source of the marital issues. But AJ and Ben are beautifully drawn characters. And I'm wondering if, uh, if they come from the fact that you teach creative writing at uh, the high school, uh, the high school uh, for the arts, in Chicago High School for the Arts. I mean, I'm not saying you have individual students you base them on, but um, have you been teaching long enough to really, like, you must be, to to be able to take some qualities from these students and to bring characters to life like that. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad to hear you say that about those characters. Uh, thank you. I mean, I, I, I wanted, I put a lot into them. Yeah, I mean, I put a lot into most of the characters, so that seems weird to say. But like, um, I did want them to be more than just um, kind of stock high school characters in some way. And I do think that is a direct experience of, of me having worked with high school students for the past 10 years. I didn't really base them on anyone specifically, but I do think that 
some of the things that they're talking about as far as identity and as far as wanting to belong and as far as like playing around with different ideas of who they are and what they want to become and sort of a mistrust of adults. All that stuff is um, very familiar to me working with teenagers. Um, and I don't think that's new. I mean, everything I just listed would have been same, would have been true for teenagers in the 90s or the 70s or the 50s or whatever. Well, with the added misery of social media, but um, I think that the combination of small town and um, teen, almost universal teenagers, but yet I think there was something a little more creative about all three of them. They, they were kind of meatier. Um, they weren't, like you say, they weren't like cardboard cutouts of, of kids. So. Um, and also Valentine, what, who Valentine turns out to be, which I'm not going to reveal, um, was a, a fascinating evolution from somebody who just seemed like kind of a, a silly character who, uh, whose life didn't appear to have much meaning. And then when the more Lee learns about him, uh, the backstory is very affecting. And also, you know, Lee meets his sister and his mother and... Um, I, th I thought that was all very well done and kind of touching. And Lee, in his journey, becomes a little less despicable than he is when, when we start out. Because, you know, when we start out, he's just some, you know, good old boy who's cheating on his wife and um, taking advantage of, you know, a, a, one of his employees. And I think his search for Valentine, the meaning of Valentine's life, um, really makes a difference for him, but he's still not Mr. Wonderful per se. You know, there's still a lot that's that that's really uh, annoying about him. Ha did you have a hard time keeping him balanced as a character? Because you don't want to go too far. You don't want to make him turn into an angel as a result of it. But you know, so I guess what do you what? Do you, how did you feel about the evolution of your main character? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, like the the question of redemption redemption can't come too easily um i feel like that that would strike me as false and i think would strike the reader as false especially when someone with someone like lee um but i do think that the opposite is also true in the sense that like if he is too far gone if he is like become sort of a ridiculous bad guy um then we also are in territory where the reader is like, you know, not going to be that interested because he's just so incredibly awful. Um, and so I think there was, as I was writing this, there were times where I where I was conscious of backing off of, of his ridiculousness. I mean, it all started because I wanted to write someone who I wouldn't necessarily, whose who's thoughts and opinions I wouldn't necessarily agree with. Um, and starting from that and, and using that as a starting point, it, it just was really fun. Um, but what you've got to do is you can't make fun, right? I couldn't make fun of him. I can, I'm definitely poking fun at some of the things he does. Obviously, it's a satire. But I still earnestly believe in him as a character and as a person, which that was the thing that I had to believe in order to, to write towards this idea of redemption. I think there was a lot of gentle fun being poked at most of the characters, except maybe the, the three kids that we met, you know, his in-laws were kind of ridiculous people. And then uh, his relationship with his brother, 
was was definitely one of the the high points you know he has an estranged brother and then he needs help from his brother and they have an encounter again which is it was just that was almost my favorite part of the book but i'm going to ask you to do a short reading if you wouldn't mind and with the setup we'll uh maybe people will understand more about what we're talking about when we talk about lee and onions and quails yeah so um the the part that i'm going to read from doesn't really have any quail people in it um but it is much more about the um what we were talking about earlier about the the produce stand and the and the i mean it's it's, not, it's more than a stand it's a market right it's 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 big enough and it has a parking lot and all this kind of stuff um so this is just sort of kind of a description of of the place and how he feels about it or how he thinks other people think about the place that's that's more accurate um and so what he's done is he's 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 midway through his journey trying to find out things about valentine and hasn't had much luck doing so and so he's coming back to he's coming back to work um at the end of like a morning trying to find some things out about him um and this is from a chapter called only love can break your heart the afternoon got busy picking up with weekend traffic the sheer number of travelers any given weekend during the summer was heartening for a small business proprietor all these people cruising up and down I-75 and their cars and trucks and SUVs and motor coaches, all headed to and from the Sunshine State. Because everybody knows there's not one destination in the southern half of Georgia between Charity and the Florida line. Kids watching movies from the back seat. Dads drinking light beer in the front, promising themselves they only have one more. Moms knitting or reading trashy magazines or wondering where they might have gone wrong in their life to be hurtling down the highway in a car they can't afford, with kids they can't stand, to a state that's no fun. And what do we do here at Hub's Fresh Produce? We add a little light to these lives, a beacon of blessed fruit in the highway wilderness. Stop in for fresh homemade peach ice cream and some southern hospitality and catch your breath. Peruse the aisles of summer harvest. The colors almost popping your eyes out with intensity. Would you like to try a boiled peanut? A what? A boiled peanut. A goober pea. It's a delicacy. Warm and salty on the tongue. Mm-mm. How about a painting of an old Coca-Cola sign rusting on the side of a filling station? You like decrepit landscapes? We got that. Floral pattern picnic baskets? Monogrammed beach towels? Scuppering on wine? Come on in. Have a seat out front in one of the white rocking chairs and fan yourself with one of our custom I'm a Hubs fan fans while the juice from a slice of fresh watermelon drips down your fingers. You can transport yourself to another time, a simpler time. It's a lot for a produce market to do, but we offer the taste of a memory, living history, a hokey vision of a falsely idealized past. In the fall, you should see how high we stack the cotton. So the day got away from me and with it my determination to find someone who deserved an onion pie. This is what work is for when it's good, to keep us from the thoughts that would otherwise break us down, cripple us with self-doubt, self-reflection, self-awareness. We work so we don't have to work on ourselves. It, it almost makes it like a place that you do want to stop. You know, I. <laughs> I it's 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 very uh, it's very evocative, and I think 
you're able to pack a lot of images into what's what's in Lee's head. You know, he's this. I think there's more, almost more in the descriptions than there is in the dialogue. You know, more his of his internal thoughts. Um, but I d would like to ask you. I had two readings in mind, and um, you chose one. But the other one that I so enjoyed was the description of how his brother deals with TV. So can you just give us a description of that? You don't have to do the reading, but I thought the whole concept was fascinating. Yeah, so um, his brother comes up with this thing that he calls a happiness quotient. Um, and he determines it by flipping through all of the channels on the television and seeing who he would want to trade places with. Um, and so if he if it's really high, if he like if he gets a number of, of people that he wants to trade places with, he's not in a good spot. So he tells Lee about this theory and Lee's like, this is ridiculous. Um, but there is, of course, the scene you're talking about. He he Lee ends up doing it himself. Um, and I won't tell you what how many people he wants to switch with. So, I mean, had, is that something you'd been thinking about for a while? Or did it pop? Because I think the idea was such a it just stopped me in my place while I was reading. I said, wait a minute, I got to read this over again because this is such an amazing thought for anyone to even have. Uh, you didn't do it, did you? You didn't go home and like flip through your channels. Well, the thing is, he also says like nobody watches TV like that anymore. So it's also like an indication of like their age and kind of like the way that they consume media. But um, I haven't done it personally. I have no idea what my score would be. So it just kind of came into your head that to the idea to do something like that. Yeah, yeah, it really did. It just seemed like something that, um, I, yeah, I think I think Pierce's his brother's name. Um, it just seemed like something his character would come up with. But you know? it's it's um, something that you came up with, which I think is it, it was so just unique to me. A lot there's a lot of uniqueness in this book. There's a lot that. Um, I hadn't thought about or read before, um, which kind of makes it hard to describe in a way because there's there's so many there's so many pieces in here. And um, do you like? Are you going to have any imagination left for another book? Are you going to plan to write another novel? Uh, yeah, I'm working on another novel right now. I mean, it's not. Uh, I, I guess it's similar to this one. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, thank you. I, like, I, I think um, I think a lot of that just comes from I want to have fun when I'm writing. I don't want it to necessarily be something that is um, difficult. I mean, there can be difficult things about it, of course, but I'm talking mostly about the, um, the original creation of the idea and the original writing. Um, that I want to be fun. So I think that's why sometimes um, you get all of this stuff thrown in because um, I'm just trying to create an atmosphere where I want to come back to the page the next day. Um, but I want to I return really quickly to something. As I was reading this, I was thinking about um, his relationship to the South. And this is a very unique sort of thing, I think, um, that the South likes to market itself as the South, right? And that can mean any number of things. But at the same time, the people who, who market that don't always necessarily believe in it. So there is a conflicted relationship that a lot of people in the South have with this creation of this place. 
Um, and personally, I have it, even though I don't live there anymore. And and Lee is also questioning it at, at that moment as well. It's like, what what are we really doing here? Um, how authentic is it? What is what is real about this place that we live in? Well, um, yeah, that uh, that that all came through. But um, we're out of time. But I want to thank you for coming in during your lunch hour. Um, you're you're still teaching, and uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, just one last question: um, Have you have do you give, would you give this to your students to read? I mean, how, like, because I think most people, most authors I speak to who are teaching are teaching writing or they're teaching adults. They're not, they're not teaching kids. How, are, are, are they curious? Do they know that you have, this book came out? And um, They do, no. Um, it has made an appearance in my classroom, but I have not um, done anything to make that happen. Um, so a student brought it in one day and was like, hey, here's your book. And, I'm, and I just kind of like move on. I, I think it's important for them to know that the people who are teaching them are also um, writers and, and they're working writers um, in the sense that they're, they're teaching, but we're also continuing to write. But I think it's also important for them to know that like the people who are engaged in this are not all dead, right? <laughs> um, the, the writing is very much alive um, and to be a writer means being part of a larger community that still very much exists. And so I, I definitely like that they know that it's there and if they want to read it, that's fine. But it's, and if they have questions, that's fine, but it's not anything that I would, I would use to, to teach anything that I'm teaching. I don't ever really use anything um, of my own to, to do that. Well, I can understand why you wouldn't, but I think um, the scene with the TV would be a great one to share with them. But I'll leave that up to you. So thank you so much for joining me today. This is a really unique book that I'm going to recommend highly to everybody. Uh, it was just uh, an une unexpected joy because I had no idea what to expect. And as I was reading it, I still had no idea what to expect. So I, I think you've done a really, a really great job. Well, thank, thank you so much. That means a ton. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's from a uh, a small independent press here in Chicago. And so um, a lot of times it's hard for these things to get noticed out there with all of the books. So it's wonderful that, you know, that you um, asked me to come on here and that you had such great things to say about it. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. I really did. Thanks. So books to viewers and listeners, um, I'm going to push this book on you. I push most books on you, but this one um, more than most, I guess, because it's not coming from a major press and you know, you may not read anything about it in the Sunday New York Times book review, but it's The Quail Who Wears the Shirt, and it's by Jeremy T. Wilson. Please look for it. I'm sure you can find it on Amazon and maybe some really cool bookstores. And uh, thanks, and have a good night.